You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader, hosting this week. And here with me is Andy Spey of the News and Observer and Colin Campbell and Lauren Horsch of the North Carolina Insider. Uh, We have a lot to talk about this week. We'll talk about the session early in the week, uh, the very brief session to deal with a uh, Governor Roy Cooper veto. Uh, We'll talk about the uh, potential settlement of the lawsuit that still lingers over HB2 and the law that replaced HB2. Uh, And we'll talk about uh, local races uh, in Raleigh, where uh, Charles Francis and Nancy McFarlane are in a runoff. Uh, And we'll also talk about the developments this week on redistricting cases. Uh, But first, uh, Governor Roy Cooper announced just yesterday uh, that he has a potential deal with the challengers in the lawsuit over HB2. I say potential deal because uh, this has to be signed off on a ju- uh, by a judge, and uh, the legislature may have something to say about it. Uh, but Colin, what's the gist of this uh, consent order? Yeah, so sort of the background on this is that uh, after HB2, uh, a bunch of uh, LGBT advocacy groups, and, and as well as the ACLU, sued the state over the law uh, when the state repealed and replaced HB2 with this compromise bill, House Bill 142, earlier this year. Uh, They basically just revised their lawsuit to challenge that instead because they were opposed to that as well. Uh, So now they've been working out this deal with the Cooper administration um, to basically take the Cooper administration off of this lawsuit um, and basically would be saying that in uh, executive branch agency facilities, uh, explicitly transgender people can use the bathroom that corresponds with their gender identity. Uh, now, that would seem to conflict with what House Bill 142 actually says, which is basically that no state agency can make its own rules for uh, multiple occupancy bathrooms, uh, that only the legislature can can weigh in on this topic. Um, so we should see what the impact is for that. This consent decree has to go before a judge. A judge has to approve it. The legislature is also a party to this lawsuit, and the legislature is not part of this deal. Um, They don't seem to have been aware of it uh, up until this week, and in fact, we haven't really heard a whole lot of reaction. Uh, We'll be asked uh, Senate Leader Phil Berger's staff for a statement, and they said their attorney is still reviewing it. Uh, House Speaker Tim Moore has not weighed in. Only the only thing we've gotten in terms of uh, negative reaction from this is uh, Senator Dan Bishop, who was the original uh, sponsor of House Bill 2, is saying that essentially Cooper's breaking the deal and that he knew it was not going to last long. Uh, and then from uh, a tweet from Representative Scott Stone, who's a Republican from down in Mecklenburg County, says, Why is Governor T- Cooper restarting HB2 drama this week? the week we submit Amazon HQ2 proposals? Does he not care about NC jobs? Hashtag get on the team, Gov. Um, so obviously, the Republicans not thrilled by this. Uh, it's kind of unclear what their next step is going to be. Uh, I should note that the consent order comes along with an executive order uh, regarding employment discrimination in uh, executive branch cabinet agencies. Anything that's under Cooper's control uh, now has a non-discrimination uh, rule that explicitly includes uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, so that's uh, seen as a victory to a lot of the LGBT groups. Now, Governor McCrory, before Cooper, had issued an executive order about uh, discrimination too, right? But this is uh, this goes beyond, well beyond that. Yeah. So this, I think, applies to like government contractors um, and sort of, res- I guess, rescinds his original executive order. 
um, replacing it with sort of a more expansive one. Uh, but there are some similarities between the two. Lauren, the legislature was back in session this week yet again for, what is it, the fourth or fifth time so far? I do believe and, it's fourth, yeah. And uh, they were back to once again override another uh, of Governor Roy Cooper's vetoes, um, this one dealing with elections. It had a lot in it, but the most controversial part was canceling the 2018 mm -hmm. judicial uh, primary. So uh, you were there Monday night as they came back. Uh, what happened? Yeah, so the Senate on Monday night, uh, they dealt the first blow to Senate Bill 656, and they overrode their part of the veto. Um, and it was just a bizarre night. They weren't supposed to come back until January, um, but they decided since Cooper vetoed it that they could come back, and they didn't want to, you know, kind of leave it up in the out in the open because of the cancellation of the judicial, judicial primaries, like you said. So they came back, vetoed it, and then there was some confusion as to whether – the House would be meeting throughout the entire week because they had to update the adjournment resolution to go through, I do believe it was this Friday, so when you're hearing this. Um, and they ended up not needing that because the House was able to whip up enough people for Tuesday morning's veto override vote. Um, but it was just, there was a lot of confusion as to why people were there. Um, it was just a very long night for not a lot of reasons other than a veto override. But this was the 10th override. Um, Cooper's vetoed 13 bills, do you believe now? And so 10 of them have been overridden, and I did a little bit of analysis. Um, governor Bev Perdue, when she, was in, when she was governor during the 2011-2012 session, is that right? Yeah. Um, she had 19 vetoes, and they overrode, I think, 11 of hers or something like that. I need to look back at my notes. But so this isn't the first time we've seen, you know. Yeah, batting average, not yeah. great for a Democratic governor <laughs> under a Republican legislature. Yeah, yeah, so it's, you know, just kind of looking at that, it's not not good for Cooper. And, you know, the more vetoes that stack up, the more overrides are probably going to get. Yeah, and they did the uh, essentially a veto override on that local uh, public notices bill. So there's really only, what, two then that they haven't yeah. done? Yeah, so the, they did the do the garbage the, juice bill that they haven't overridden. Yeah, it's the aerosol like, leachate night. and casino night. And we're still not sure if they're going to be able to override those vetoes. They're kind of sitting out in committee right now. If it happens, it happens. But it's right now, no one's sure if they will. Because I know people from the industry, the aerosol leachate bill, they've said that, you know, we don't need this technology. It doesn't work. So that could just stay, you know, vetoed and then it wouldn't be long. But we're not quite sure. We'll see what happens. Hmm. Um, well, Colin, uh, the, so the judicial primary of 2018 is now canceled, um, but it's still a little unclear what is going to happen with judicial elections. And um, some Democrats were uh, saying that uh, this is all a setup to basically um, do away with judicial elections altogether, right? So Yeah, so the um, basically the idea is that the legislature is going to come back in January. They're going to look at Justin Burr's uh, judicial redistricting proposal that's already passed the House, uh, but they're also going to look at possibly some other options. Um, and that's where there's been all the speculation of merit selection. Here's what we know for sure. Uh, Senate leader Phil Berger's chief of staff, Jim Blaine, has been going around to judges groups and discussing with them the possibility of some form of merit selection process. We haven't gotten any details yet on if Blaine has got any specific proposals in mind uh, or whether it's just generally sort of soliciting feedback on the idea. Uh, Democrats, including Governor Roy Cooper, are saying what they want to do is 
legislative selection of judges. So the, the legislature would uh, nominate and uh, confirm uh, judicial appointments, and there would be no elections. That's something that we haven't gotten confirmed out of any of the Republicans yet, despite what the New York Times reported this week. Um, so that's all sort of up in the air remains to be seen. One proposal we did get in concrete form this week was a bill filed to do a uh, constitutional amendment on judicial terms, shortening the term of every judge in the state to two-year terms. Uh, The rationale for that listed in the uh, press release and the uh, statement of the bill signing from uh, Bill Rabin and uh, David Lewis, the two rules chairmen in both the House and the Senate who seem to have agreed on this, uh, is that Judges are acting like legislators by, I guess, overturning laws uh, passed by the legislature, so they need to be treated like legislators who have to run for re-election every two years and face the voters. Um, and judges, some of their terms right now are as much as, what, eight Eight years, years? Uh, for some judges. Um, and what that typically means is that uh, the election of judges is relatively staggered, so you don't have to go to the polls in a you know even-numbered year and vote for 30 judges. Um, you're voting for a few of them, and then the others will come up in two years. Uh, and so this would mean you'd be voting for a lot of judges a lot of the time. Um, and a lot of the Democrats are very concerned that this is going to mean the judiciary would become even more politicized uh, than it is now because you would essentially be functioning as politicians who have to be constantly running for re-election. Right. And they've already uh, made those elections partisan uh, earlier this year. So. Yeah, so that's that's already done. So the question is, what happens in January? Do we do redistricting? Do we do this constitutional amendment? Um, do we do both of those things? Or do we come up with a merit selection plan that's completely different? Uh, the Republicans keep dinging uh, Cooper for supporting this thing that uh, he voted for back in 95, which I wrote a little bit about, uh, was a bill for uh, judicial selection. But the process would have been uh, the governor makes the nominations, uh, the legislature confirms them, um, and then the uh, judges are subject to a retention election where there's an up or down vote on whether to uh, keep them in office after that time. That bill didn't pass. Uh, Cooper was a strong supporter of it, and he's sort of arguing, well, this is different. Uh, Republicans are accusing him of flip-flopping and being a hypocrite about it. He says um, what Republicans want to do is legislative uh, control as opposed to sort of a more nonpartisan process. And I thought it was interesting that, that Senate Leader Phil Berger weighed in and that story you wrote and said what we're considering now is similar. I don't remember if that was the exact word. Yeah, it was, it was sort of uh, it was sort of the wording, um, which was interesting. So particularly given that they're continuously bringing up this 1995 bill in debate this past week, it makes you wonder if uh, the bill comes up as, as similar. Because they're, of course, accusing Cooper of saying, well, you supported this in 95 when Democrats would have controlled pretty much the entire process. Uh, but you don't like it now that you know Republicans would, would have to be uh, a key component of this. Uh, one other thing to note about the session and the veto override is that third parties were apparently cheering uh, at this. So um, why do they care about this uh, uh, judicial elections bill? Well, North Carolina has got some of the hardest third-party ballot access rules in the country. Uh, And so what that has historically meant is that you go to the polls here, uh, you'll see a libertarian candidate, a Democrat, and a Republican, um, and no other third party do you have even the opportunity to vote for generally. Um, So what this would mean uh, is that the signatures required to get on the ballot is significantly less for a third party. Um, so for parties like the Green Party or the Constitution Party, which are the other ones that I think have some sort of presence in North Carolina, uh, they think they're within a striking distance of getting on the ballot now under these new rules. Uh, so we'll, we'll see in the next year or so if that actually happens.
Okay. Um, there was a little bit of news on the uh, redistricting front this week. There's a trial going on. It should be wrapping up uh, pretty much uh, as soon as we as we record this on Thursday uh, in Greensboro related to the congressional maps that were drawn in 2016 to address the uh, the court ruling last year uh, that struck down the 2011 maps. And so this is one of several cases in the country that could decide whether partisan gerrymandering, to what extent partisan gerrymandering can go on, and the most prominent one being the, the Wisconsin case uh, that's at the Supreme Court level right now, but this is going on here in tandem. Uh, but then also there's the, uh, the legislative maps, and um, this week we found out there's not going to be any agreement on uh, who the court could tap to redraw these maps if the court decides that the new maps drawn by the legislature are no good, right? Yeah, so the courts had asked uh, the two sides in the lawsuit to come up with some uh, potential candidates for what's uh, in legal terms is called a special master, which sounds like a Star Wars thing. It's really just a third-party person who has the skills to draw maps based on whatever criteria uh, the court might uh, put in it, its order. Uh, this, of course, all if the current uh, districts get struck down. The court has not said yet uh, if it's going to strike down these districts. Of course, uh, uh, people who want to see them struck down are seeing this as a positive sign that uh, the judges might be looking on their side. Uh, so I guess both sides got together this week and uh, they threw out some names and could not agree on anybody. So they filed a, on Wednesday a motion basically saying, uh, we tried, uh, we failed, we don't have anybody, any names to offer you. So this will mean that uh, if this does become an issue where uh, someone needs to be appointed, the, the judges are going to have to find some people on their own. Uh, they're not going to get any help from uh, the uh, two sides in this case. We tried to find out who the names that had been submitted by both sides were. Uh, haven't gotten anybody to, uh, to tell me that yet. So uh, no, no word yet on whether uh, Tom Hoffler was the Republican pick or uh, whether the uh, opponents of the current districts wanted to go with uh, Bob Hall or William Barber or somebody like that. That would be an interesting meeting to cover, the uh, committee of uh, those guys trying to hammer out maps they can all agree yeah, on. Yeah, make um, a deal with the Republican lawmakers, these you know, nonprofit groups that are challenging districts and have been their foes all along. Maybe we should do a fantasy draft of uh, redistricting special masters yeah. Uh, to follow up on yeah, your, our twenty twenty picks. Who would yeah. you pick as a special master? <laughs> uh, and Hoffalero uh, is the guy who uh, contracted with the Republicans here to draw the maps, and he was actually at the trial in Greensboro, um, but he didn't comment to the reporters other than to say uh, he told them, "I don't have horns." And that was his the, his full extent of his, his comment, <laughs> I guess, because the Democrats have been demonizing him. Um, so uh, let's turn to local politics real quick before we go to um, headliner of the week. Andy, uh, you've been following the race between uh, Charles Francis and Nancy McFarland, which is now in a runoff. Um, so bring us up to speed on where that stands. Yeah. Uh, last Tuesday, obviously, there was a race for mayor and uh, incumbent, may unaffiliated incumbent mayor Nancy McFarlane uh, got 48% of the vote, which is just 2% uh, short of what she needs to secure a victory. Uh, the sec the runner-up was Charles Francis, and he's a registered Democrat, and he got 36% of the vote. So he came in 12 percentage points behind her and 6,000 votes behind her, um, but that was still within reach to call for a runoff. And so 
uh, over the past week, they've sort of been jockeying for votes. Um, the Republican candidate didn't, his name's Paul Fitz, he didn't make the cut for a runoff. Um, so uh, earlier this week, Francis went to the Wake County Republican Party. Francis, the Democrat, went to the Wake County Republican Party and spoke. Uh, Mayor Nancy McFarland, who's unaffiliated, but has, um, I think many would say, liberal leanings, um, declined to go there, saying that she didn't want to uh, necessarily court uh, the leaders of the quote party of Trump, um, although she noted that she has conser- some conservative backers uh, or supporters, I should say. Um, and so they will debate on uh, News 14, also known as Spectrum, also known as whatever. Time t- Warner. Time Cable. Warner, yeah, whatever, uh, on <laughs> Friday. And that will air. I think Friday and Sunday, or one of yeah, the two. Friday night at seven, and Sunday morning at maybe ten o'clock, if memory serves. Tim Boyum, the uh, Capital Tonight host, uh, is the moderator for that. I guess it's not not filmed in front of an audience or anything. It's just in their studio in uh, Raleigh. And, right. And you uh, fact checked a claim from Nancy McFarlane about whether they had already debated, right? Because Fra- Francis was um, going after for basically ignoring him, and uh, McFarlane said, "No, we've debated." Um, so uh, what did you what did you find? That's right. Uh, he has said she's run away from him, doesn't want to discuss the issues. Uh, she said we've debated, quote, multiple times. Uh, we found that statement to be half true. Uh, it sort of depends on how you define debate. Uh, uh, Francis defined it as, you know, standing on stage in front of a television audience and uh, – Having being able to rebut each other, uh, and she said that you know there were multiple forums they were at where they were the two they were sort of isolated in a Q and A session where they took turns responding to things, and while they didn't necessarily you know accuse one another of anything um, and look at their face and point fingers and um, you know pound the table, they did have uh, you know exchanges, some of them heated, and so. Uh, like I said, we found it to be half true. They haven't had a high-profile debate on television, no. But uh, there have been at least two exchanges where, uh, you know, they went back and forth on the issues in front of an audience. There's a fair amount of half-truths in this race, I guess, because you also found half-truth something that Francis uh, had to say about where he was getting his support from in Raleigh. So what did, what did he claim? That's right. Uh, the day after the election, he was weighing. He said he was weighing whether or not to uh, call for a runoff, and he stood on the steps of his law firm and said, uh, "You know, I got support all over the city. We ran neck and neck in Northwest Raleigh, and I did overwhelmingly uh, well in Southeast Raleigh. Uh, and obviously, there are some um, under." undertones there, uh, economic and racial, you know, Southeast Raleigh is majority black, Northwest, elsewhere in the city, you know, where, you know, the houses are more expensive, um, not as, not quite as diverse. Um, and so, but his, his implication was that he had broad support throughout the city. And so we looked at the precincts to determine where he got his strongest support and where McFarland got her strongest support and found that, uh, yeah, of course, as the Democrat in a city full of registered Democrats, dominated by Democrats, he got votes in every district. But there were, I can't remember the exact number, 10 to 12 districts in the heart of Raleigh, downtown, and inside the Beltline, where he didn't come close. Uh, she beat him by over 100 votes. Uh, and a couple of those, he struggled uh, to get uh, three figures, you know, three-digit 
uh, votes. Um, so we, we rated his claim half true as well. Uh, yes, he got support throughout the city, but he still lost by 6,000. And in some of the densest areas of the city, he did not compete very well. All right. Well, unless there's anything we should talk about, we should uh, take a break and come back with Headliner of the Week. Please stay with us. Hi, I found a toy dinosaur over on the playground by Smith Street. Uh, It had this phone number on it, and, well, I just wanted to make sure the dinosaur made it back to its little owner. When I found the little sippy cup, I just had to give you a call. It's for a kid, you know? I know my son gets super attached to the smallest things, even a fire truck, and I'd be happy to drop it off. We'd do anything for kids, yet one in six children in the U.S. struggle with hunger. Help end childhood hunger near you. Learn how at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. And welcome back to Domecast. And now it's time for us to decide who the most important or interesting person of the week is in our Headliner of the Week segment. Uh, Colin, why don't, why don't you go for it first? Right. Who's your Headliner of the Week? I'm going with State Senator Jerry Tillman, a Republican from uh, Randolph County. Uh, he came up with a uh, bill uh, in the last week or so, a sort of rare uh, bill introduced during the interim between sessions, uh, to double the uh, advertising budget for the state lottery. Uh, they're currently limited to, I think it's 1% of their total budget can go towards advertising. The idea being uh, they don't really want the state saturated with uh, lottery ads encouraging people to uh, spend their money on lottery tickets. Um, Tillman says by increasing that, you can increase lottery revenues, and that just means more money for schools. Uh, So he rolled out this bill in kind of an interesting way. Um, He's the chairman of the Lottery Oversight Committee, uh, and when they held a meeting uh, uh, about a week or so ago that was basically just to get some updates uh, from the uh, lottery uh, folks about what they're doing, Uh, at the very end of the meeting, he passes out this bill and uh, immediately has a vote on it. Uh, In fact, before some of the legislators, even of his own party, were able to necessarily read the whole bill. Uh, So he got some criticism over process, but uh, managed to get the bill through that committee, uh, meaning it will probably get introduced um, in next year's legislative session. So more talk about that. Uh, Jerry Tillman, uh, state senator, will be leading the way uh, on the lottery stuff. Okay, Senator Jerry Tillman in the hat for headliner of the week. Andy Spay, who's your headliner of the week? I'm not going to go with a politician. I'm going to go with uh, an 11-year-old boy, and his name's Liam. And uh, to protect uh, what privacy has left, I'm going to n- not include his last name. But uh, this week, a story that, uh, full disclosure, uh, my wife wrote about a family from, I think, Durham or Chapel Hill, uh, sort of drew attention to the state of the mental health uh, system in, our, uh, in North Carolina. And it was about, the story is about an 11-year-old uh, who has had behavioral problems. And eventually his parents decided to, that he needed to go to a mental hospital. And so that process is not only um, full of bureaucratic hurdles, but um, emotionally draining. You have to have your son committed. Uh, police come, put him in handcuffs, and take him away. Uh, to the ER. And because our state has so few uh, mental facilities, you wait in the ER until a bed opens up. Uh, And for uh, this little boy and his family, that wait uh, turned out to be 10 days. And for part of that, he was, um, if I remember correctly, strapped down. Uh, It was, I, I can't imagine what that experience must have been like for him and for his family, but unfortunately, it's not unique. 
um, for someone to be in the ER that long. So this little boy doesn't know it, but he got the attention of people like Greg Meyer, uh, local legislator, uh, as well as others. Um, he got the attention of the Durham Herald Sun and our own paper. We picked up versions of the story. His mom blogs about the experiences, but um, that's what I'm going to go with just because, you know, we need people. It, this is one of those things where we need people to be the faces of issues to, you know, so that we can share their stories as examples of how messed up our system is. And this week that happens to be an 11-year-old who probably doesn't know that we're all paying attention to him, but who you know, could have possibly make a big difference someday. All right, 11-year-old Liam. He's in the hat for headliner of the week. And Lauren Horsch, who's your headliner of the week? So I'm not going to go with um, a person. I'm going to go with a thing. And that thing is the 150th North Carolina State Fair. Um, and the reason I'm picking this is because the insider has taken an interest in it just because a lot of the uh, Council of State members are there. Some on a daily basis, I know. State Treasurer Dale Falwell is there today. Governor Cooper was there yesterday. Elaine uh, Marshall has been twice. <laughs> yeah, no, when I, when I was there on Saturday, I actually saw Elaine Marshall, and I wasn't going to talk shop, but I did take a photo and send it to the insiders. Um, <laughs> so I just... There's something about the state fair that just brings everyone together, and so we're actually surveying the Council of State members to see, you know, what their favorite parts of the fair are. Um, so, yeah, the state fair, just great. Nothing can be finer. I'm not even going to, you know, talk about the Minnesota State Fair there. Um, but, yeah. Is there a rivalry with Minnesota over the state fairs? Okay, yeah. No. Well, that'll be for another podcast, but, yes, there is. there's lots of rivalries, but... I do really love the North Carolina State Fair, and a lot of other people do, including the politicians. This can be better than ours. It's probably super cold up there. No, so Minnesota holds there's an August, which is uh, part of the hottest time of the year in Minnesota, which is not fun for those of us high, when we were in high school who had to march in marching bands for the state fair. It was not fun. But North Carolina, you got a great state fair. What's the best fried food there this year? So I didn't or try, fried or non-fried. I was going to say, I didn't try food. all of the fried foods, but there is a specific corn dog stand that I go to every year, and it's got the best corn dogs, and I can't remember what it's called. I just know the location, and I beeline to it immediately as I get into the fair. Yeah, Lauren says this is some sort of uh, great secret because she doesn't actually know how to describe the location, so she can't really recommend you the best corn dog. She can't tell you where it's at. But, but I can <laughs> bring it to you if you go to the fair with me, and my friends know this because I immediately go, we got to go this way, we got to go that way, so yeah. Top it off with that deep-fried pumpkin pie. That was my, my fave this year. All right. Any preview of what uh, elected officials are saying about uh, about the fair? Did Elaine Marshall uh, oh, win Elaine. a Cupid doll? Or, um, yeah, no. Wrong? Elaine Marshall's answer was really cute. Let me find hers. But she basically talked about since she was in the FFA, she likes going to all the FFA booths and uh, – Josh Stein talked about how he has to play games until he wins. He likes wins. the squirt gun game, yeah, apparently. Yeah, specifically it's just the squirt gun game. So he plays that until he wins. Um, who was? Who else? Let's see. Dan Forrest enjoys fried food and mini donuts. Yes. Um, uh, commissioner Troxler, who's, of course, the agriculture commissioner. He's kind of like the head of the state fair. He's a big proponent of that. He loves the village of yesteryear. And what else? Um and this year, I don't know if it's a new thing, but mm -hmm. this year they uh, it, they had this like they had giant germs up 
Did you see these? Oh, like, have saying you, don't uh, you know don't spread your germs and yeah. Well, they have that. Um, the last couple of years, they've had this tent where you go in there and they give you this lotion to put on your hands, and then they tell you to wash your hands, and then they put you under this like weird green light that shows up the lotion you failed to wash off and tells you just how bad you are at washing germs off your hands. Um, and to get people into that exhibit, they have a guy dressed in a germ costume sometimes. Okay. Well, this year they had one of those big uh, plastic things that waves back and forth. Uh, and it was some kind. It's supposed to be some kind of germ. So I thought that, I didn't know if that was a new a new element in the state fair or not. But, um, okay. Well, uh, enough about the state fair. I think uh, I think actually Andy is going to be our winner uh, this week and headliner of the week. And um, we will choose eleven year old Liam. Uh, it's a pretty powerful story. And unfortunately, it doesn't sound like it's all that unusual. Um, a lot of people wait for days, adults and kids, um, in emergency rooms. Uh, uh, they're boarded there or whatever you want to call it. Um, and, you know, a lot of people uh, say we just don't really have enough beds in the psychiatric hospitals uh, here. Uh, in fact, we've closed some of them. So uh, for that, Liam is our headliner of the week. Uh, and uh, so Andy doesn't have to plug his wife anymore. Uh, read the full story on Liam at NC Health News. <laughs> <laughs> right. 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 All right. That's it for Domecast this week. Uh, for Lauren Horsch, Andy Spay, and Colin Campbell, I'm Jordan Schrader. Catch us next week. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.